put in your earbuds, pour a cup of tea, or put on your work gloves. It's time for another episode of the No-Till Flowers podcast. As always, I'm your ever-curious host, Jenny Love. My guest today is Nigel Palmer, the author of one of my favorite reference books, The Regenerative Grower's Guide to Garden Amendments. When Nigel's book came out in 2020, I had already read as much as I could about Korean natural farming and had the official book on Jadam, two well-known approaches to growers making their own natural inputs from quote-unquote waste products like eggshells and grass clippings. Nigel's book was a refreshingly distilled and readable take on many of the same recipes. I appreciated that Nigel acknowledged in his work that all of this wisdom about natural growing originates with indigenous peoples. We haven't invented anything new here in the regenerative ag scene with all of our buzzwords. We are thankfully, finally, revisiting the old ways and ancient intuition once carried easily within a person's heart when they worked the land to produce food and medicine. I also really welcomed Nigel's data-driven approach to natural homemade inputs for farm fertility and soil biology. To be honest, when I first undertook making homemade fertilizers with weeds and so forth, it felt pretty darn witchy, like brewing a potion or something. Nigel's book is full of tables of data that puts the science behind these intuitive fermentations and distillations for plant vigor and soil health. In this interview, Nigel generously shares with us how to do some citizen science of our own to understand the mineral and biological content of what we are crafting. And did I mention how readable Nigel's book is? (laughs) He's got a knack for distillation in more ways than one. This was such an easy flowing conversation with Nigel. Not often do I get to talk to the author of a book that I admire. Having the chance to ask Nigel all the follow-up questions that have been circulating in my brain was such immense joy. If you haven't already, make sure to get a copy of his book and also check out Nigel's website and YouTube channel for additional resources and videos illustrating how to make many of these homemade inputs. I'll link directly to those in the show notes, of course. If you're curious about making your own homemade fertility and biological inputs and many other regenerative growing practices as they relate to flower farming, consider joining the Regenerative Flower Farmers Network. Find it at regenerativeflowerfarmersnetwork.org, a vibrant community hub for the ever-curious flower farmer. This new network helps make connections, start conversations, and serves as a repository for a curated collection of articles and studies on regenerative practices, including written recipes for how to make the weed tea and eggshell extracts Nigel and I talk about in this conversation. Membership in the network also goes to support the making of more podcast episodes here on No-Till Flowers. Nigel will be joining me over on the Regenerative Flower Farmers Network for some extra nerdy content with a live Q&A session where members can participate too. So make sure not to miss that. Alrighty, here's Nigel. Today, I'm really excited to be talking to Nigel Palmer, who is the author of The Regenerative Grower's Guide to Garden Amendments, which is a book that really helped clarify a lot of things for me when it came to Jadam in particular. So I'd already picked up on Korean natural farming and had the book for Jadam, but it was complicated and confusing in many ways. And um, Nigel's little book uh, was uh, just pure gold. So Nigel, welcome to the podcast today. I'm excited to continue to pick your brain for everybody to listen to. (laughs) 
Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Awesome. All right, let's dive into why did you feel compelled to write this book? <laughs> what what drove you to uh, this book? Well, I um, so there was a long journey to get there, but the the long and short is how do you grow food without buying things in a store? Is mm. the simple way to start. And uh, it took a lot of time to gather this information and put it together and then start using it. And you know, somewhere along the line, it became clear to me that this information is way too difficult to find and it should be available to people, anybody who wants it. Hmm. And uh, that was really the main impetus to writing the book about it is to try and consolidate these ideas in one place and create a toolbox that um, just about anybody could use um, and any growing level, whether you're a beginner or a, a seasoned professional, um, um, how do you how do you take all of these ideas and put them into a place where, uh, as I say, it becomes a toolbox where you can pick and choose and use what you need to not only have uh, 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 the tools to make amendments, biological and mineral amendments, and to use them, but also a model, a framework within which to assess why are you doing something in the garden or the farm? Um, and, and to have this model that says, okay, I'm going to do this because I'm trying to uh, nurture the biology in my soil, for instance. Um, and so, uh, yeah, that's about it. Try to put some tools together so that Anybody can use them and, and utilize them and become experimental gardeners themselves. I love that. And it, I have to say, one of the things that I guess I got your book maybe a, a year or two ago, it was shortly after it was published. And one of the things, there's many things in your book that we'll talk about, but one of the things that your book triggered for me was to start keeping a journal. Because before that, mm -hmm. I really, I had been doing, you know, natural inputs, had, had been, you know, sort of winging it. And I don't know why I never thought to keep a journal before, <laughs> like to like keep track yeah. of it, to keep a record of it. And that that in and of itself was uh, just pure gold. It's really helped inform my choices as I've been moving along. Uh, and I really have to thank you for that little tidbit. It's so simple, but so utterly important. So <laughs> I now have this notebook full of scribbles and recipes of my own and um, just the formulas that I've been using. So yeah. Lovely. Well, this is such a gift to to uh, all regenerative growers, whether they're gardeners, farmers, or, or um, people just getting started. So one of the things I wanted to have you on for in particular was to talk about what I first knew is Jajam Liquid Fertilizers, or JLF, and then you present it in the book. By the way, the book, for those listening, is uh, twofold magical because it's great like base information that you can go through. And then half of the book or a lot of the book is actually recipes that are just like written out like a cookbook, basically, you know, the same thing, like here's the ingredients you're going to need. This is the process to make it. Uh, so it really breaks down all the specifics for, you know, brewing your own, crafting your own uh, recipes and your own amendments. So in your book, um, you titled it a different word or a different title, which now I'm going to have to, I should have looked this up. 
up. <laughs> it is the leaf mold fermentation, I think is what you're calling it in the book, which is basically you take plant material of a certain kind, then you put that in a bucket of rainwater with a handful of leaf mold, and then you cap it with a lid and you let it ferment, basically an uh, anaerobic fermentation for about six months or thereabouts. That's the one I'm talking about. So, um, so with that in mind, can you, I guess, do you just want to dissect that a little bit? Because uh, what I, I mostly have found at my own farm is that that process of creating my own fermented uh, fertilizer, natural fertilizer from plant material that's on the farm already has been super powerful. It is uh, It stimulates growth in a whole different way. The plants are much healthier. And I would love you to um, just go into that for listeners about what you discovered when you were reading about that and you did some great research on it. So fire away. <laughs> so it all started with uh, um, the simple idea of putting weeds in a bucket of rainwater and letting it rot. Um, and because it just seemed right. And these are the kinds of things that indigenous people have done forever. Mm -hmm. And that's really was a starting place for me. I just figured, okay, we'll take the plants and put them in a bucket and see what happens. Well, of course, after about two weeks, it stinks terribly. <laughs> uh, it is. I, I got complaints from the other inhabitants of my house um, about it all. But, you know, the plants don't mind. They mm -hmm. don't care if it smells bad. And it just seemed like the right thing to do. Um, well, the ideas in Jadam where you're using leaf mold uh, takes that idea to a totally different level. Um, leaf mold represents the quintessential biology in your local area. Uh, it has more stuff going on in that handful than any of us perhaps will realize in our entire life. Um, not only bacteria, uh, uh, fungi, uh, archaea, uh, you name it. There's all kinds of stuff in that handful. And um, that idea was just totally fascinating for me because now I could take the weeds that are in my backyard, the rainwater that falls in my backyard, a handful of leaf mold, and all of a sudden I can make a really cool, powerful amendment. Um, and it's a time thing. Um, you want to do that. You take the weeds, put it in the bucket, the rainwater, add the leaf mold, and then wait. Well, um, so an example might be uh, tomatoes. I'm a vegetable. I like vegetables. They really <laughs> taste good. Some of the flowers taste good too, by the way. <laughs> they but, do. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Um, and so if tomatoes, for instance, is, is the idea at the end of the year, you've got these tomatoes and they're hanging out and you, some of them rot or they go bad or insect damage. Well, what do you do with them? Well, you take them and put them in a bucket, fill it with water, throw in a handful of leaf mold. And all of a sudden I've got a amendment and amendment that I can use the following year to feed my tomatoes. Well, that is just so empowering and, and it just makes so much intuitive sense. Um, and uh, so the next thing is uh, um, when I started making all of these amendments, I thought to myself, okay, these are great ideas. They make intuitive sense. I thought, well, I wonder what's really inside these things. Mm -hmm. And so then I decided that I ought to start analyzing them and trying to measure what minerals were actually in them. And I picked the 16, 17 different minerals that uh, uh, people suggest plants need these days. And I went and started analyzing the fermented plant juices that I was making, the vinegar extractions and the leaf mold biology ex 
extractions that I was making. And lo and behold, you find that all the minerals that plants need are in these things. Well, mm. guess what? They're made from plants. That Again, back to intuition kind of thing. But actually documenting these analyses and, and seeing them in there was, was really empowering again for me because it made me realize that, yeah, these are not only are they really great ideas, but the stuff that plants need is really there. Mm. Um, and um, um, I, in, in the tables in the back, I list uh, uh, some of the different extractions as well as the minerals in them, in, that are in them. Um, and you can see that there's a different uh, uh, amounts, quantity, concentrations mm -hmm. of minerals, depending on what extraction you use. But there's also different biologies that are going on there, different complex compounds, whether they be enzymes or, 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 or whatever they might be. And uh, it's the leaf mold fermentations that I believe there's all kinds of stuff like that in there that I don't have the ability to measure, but I can measure the effects. Mm -hmm. And um, I've talked about how to do that as well. Um, so I think that to, to try and just round it out, um, these are ways that you can make really powerful amendments, both biological and mineral amendments. I've measured them. You can see that they're all in there and they really work. And, uh, and then again, we're back to this idea of the toolbox. You've got all the, all the ideas of why it works. You've got the recipes on how to make them and using a refractometer, you can actually measure their efficacy on the plant themselves. So again, you have a toolbox of ideas that you can use to uh, expand and experiment yourself, especially if you have a notebook and you're actually going to keep track of all these things. <laughs> it's that notebook, baby. So let me ask you, uh, so first, how did you analyze the mineral content and stuff? What What is that process? Because I've always thought like, oh, yeah. I should I should like find out what my nettle tea is, but I literally have no idea how to do that. So what did you do? Yeah. Well, um, uh, two things there. First thing is uh, I started to figure out, well, what kind of a lab and what kind of analysis do I really want to do? And so I looked at a bunch of different spectroscopies and, and different labs that do these things. And um, I experimented with several labs and uh, I found some of the analyses were extremely expensive <laughs> and they, they were up in the hundreds to $300 for a single analysis. And I thought, well, you know, that's not going to work in the long run. I mean, it might be interesting for a few things just to get a handle on what the analysis shows. Um, and eventually I zeroed in on uh, a pretty straightforward analysis that Logan Labs yeah. had agreed. And, um, and so I've standardized that. Now, on my website, I also have a, uh, a link on my website where um, I give the directions and the forms that you can use to contact Logan Labs uh -huh. and get this done. So all the directions and the forms is on my website. And furthermore, um, the cost of, of having this done is, I think it's about $35 or something like that uh, through Logan Labs. And you can also do it through my website. It's the same cost. And if you do it through my website, then the analysis will be sent to me as well as you. And I'm, I'm publishing a database on my website that's available to anybody wow. in the world for free. And uh, so you can actually do these analyses following those processes uh, on the website using Logan Labs. You can see some of the analysis that I've already done on my website. And, and I'm just going to keep building on that um, as time goes on. And one of the main reasons I did this is because uh, I was speaking to people in other parts of the world and I'd say, yeah, you know, just go get some stinging nettle and, you know, this and that. And they'd say, well, we don't have stinging nettle. And I said, well, 
well, what do you have? And they'd say, well, I'm not sure. And then it suddenly, it suddenly became clear that if you're in uh, Pakistan, for instance, or, or somewhere in that part of the world, you could do these analyses with whatever plants indigenous and local to you. And then you can put it on this website and all of a sudden people in that part of the world are going to be able to wow. get these informations as well. That is just, I, Nigel, I just have to say, that is like blowing my mind. I didn't know you had that on your website. And I also yeah. am just like, so inspired by the idea of a, a whole globe working towards creating this database, because this is sort of the the natural science that um, sort of conventional fertilizers don't want us to, they don't want us to do this, <laughs> like because this is like knowledge is power. And so if we can build the data, then we can all see the power of it together. And I, I had no idea you were doing that. Like I, I was already so inspired by your book, but now I'm additionally inspired by this project. And I will absolutely yeah. contribute my own stuff through that. So when you do an, when you do an analysis, I know it's going to be on the website and I'll link to it in the show notes so everybody can find it easily. But just walk us through it. Do we do we send in uh, a leaf of, you know, say it's nettle? Do we send in a leaf of nettle or are we brewing the the leaf mold biology first and then sending in liquid from the brew? Which one do we yeah, send? So it's it's the latter. So you okay. actually go ahead and, and make whatever amendment, whether it's a vinegar extraction, a fermented plant juice, or a leaf mold biology extraction. And when you get a product, uh, then you can uh, take that liquid. And I think it's like uh, maybe a couple ounces of the liquid okay. uh, is sent to Logan Labs. And um, um, and so what happens is if you yeah, anyway, so the and long and short, the, the liquid goes to Logan Labs yeah. and then they share the results with me and you. Wow. And, and then I, um, I'm i trying to get a discipline of updating this thing on some regular basis, which, you know, uh, that requires a lot of discipline work. on my part. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that's a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, it's but work. It's, it's a passion project. So it people, is, it really is. People can is. support it by buying your book and doing your workshops. So there you go, if somebody uh, is inspired. Yeah. So, um, oh, yeah. speaking of workshops, I want to make sure to talk about that. So you host some workshops both online and in person for anybody who wants to learn more about regenerative inputs and so forth. So give us a quick rundown of what that looks like and how people could could you know connect in that way yeah i um, i do i'm offering a a five-part two-hour each uh program 10 total hours uh and i think there's one coming up at the end of february um and that's received quite a a, a lot of positive uh, uh feedback i'm really excited about that i'm getting people from all over the world and it allows people from all over the world to connect and and share ideas um yeah, that's a really fun workshop. I'm also trying to uh, uh, get people together uh, along the lines of three different ideas. One is the gardener, the next is the farmer. How do you scale this up? And the other thing is people in the urban environment. Um, I'm getting a lot of input, inputs from people from uh, cities, large cities saying, okay, you know, that's great, but uh, I, where do I find leaf mold in Manhattan? Um, <laughs> True. And things like that. <laughs> And so um, I'm trying to offer those sorts of conversations uh, uh, as well to try and stimulate uh, uh, an international discussion on, on those subjects as well. Hmm, that's so cool. And I also uh, teach at a school called the Institute of Sustainable Nutrition, uh, which is an, uh, an in-person program right now. Um, we're 
we're slowly moving to the Zoom idea um, only because that's the way things go these days. Um, but yeah, that's an in-person program here in Connecticut. Uh, we're in the Northwest corner of Connecticut uh, and um, that's an online program. And that is uh, covers far more than gardening. I teach the garden portion of that program, but that also covers nutrition and uh, kitchen medicine and cooking and, and things like that as well. Wow, that sounds incredible. I kind of want to come up and do that. <laughs> it's hard to find time away from my farm though. <laughs> so. So I wanted to really talk about a couple things. Well, first, let me let me drive home the power of what you've outlined in the book and this um, this fermentation process that is linked back to indigenous um, people and and was also talked about through Jadam and Korean uh, natural farming. But so here at my farm, I have brewed what I call either weed tea, which is uh, weeds that were overwhelming my space. And we would just gather those weeds, my crew and I, and put them in a bucket of five, a five gallon bucket of rainwater, and then uh, put leaf mold, a handful of leaf mold in, and then put a lid on it, label it, and sit it to the side for several months until it just turned into a stinky, weird green you know, I don't know, <laughs> potion. <laughs> Potion's probably the best word. And then we uh, will use that. So I, I just call it leaf mold or um, weed tea or JLF. We use that and spray it around or drench the soil where that weed used to be growing, where it was in abundance. So the one that we use the most here are the ones that we use the most are chickweed because we have ridiculous amounts of chickweed over the winter. So it's been really easy to be able to gather that chickweed in the wintertime uh, and then be able to brew it and then actually be able to use it the next season because if you get it started, um, you'll be able to use it towards the end of the season. And then uh, mile-a-minute vine and uh, bindweed are the other two that we've done a lot of. And I'm sure we've done other ones, but those are the three that really stick out to me as we've specifically taken a nasty, annoying weed. We've harvested for all intents and purposes instead of just like weeding it. We're actually harvesting it, gathering it and turning it into an input back into the farm. I find so much joy in that process because what used to be a tedious, obnoxious, I'm cursing under my breath at this stupid weed, it seems time-consuming and a waste, now feels like we're gathering amazing fertility for the farm in the future. So it was really helped me feel more um, joyful about the work that we're doing when it comes to weeding. My, you know, I, I have, um, I have a one member of my crew who's awesome is as good at questioning me in in the most positive way in that just like he doesn't buy it hook line and sinker sometimes I'm a hook line and sinker kind of girl <laughs> and he's always like but does it really work like are you sure about this like what is, what is happening here so I thought oh well, I'm gonna ask Nigel about this <laughs> so yeah. do you know if 
taking a weed and brewing it in this fermentation process and then putting it back onto the same space that the weed was in will change the mineral profile in the soil and therefore will essentially eliminate the weed in the long term. That's that's sort of the mental process that I'm taking based on reading the book When Weeds Talk by Jay mm. McMahon. I'm sorry, probably saying that wrong. But um, in that book, he was... Yeah. Yeah. In that book, he was saying that, well, the weeds are just there because they're trying to mine the minerals out of the soil. And once they mine the minerals out of the soil and they decay, then the weeds will shift. They will evolve into other weeds because now the soil profile is different. Um, and so I'm just trying to speed up that process, basically. So what do you what do you think? Am I crazy? Does this make sense? Is there do you have a suggestion for, uh, you know, uh, collecting data on it, you know, besides doing the analysis kind of stuff? Um, okay, so there's a pretty big wide open door. It's big. <laughs> Step on in. So the, the easy answer is I think you're right on time. Um, and okay. and so I, I like to explain things in terms of a model. I go back to some large mm -hmm. picture model. And the model I'm going to draw on here is the concept that uh, weeds are nature's way of remineralizing the soil. And I think uh, um, most of us know that weeds grow in very specific types of soil. They don't just grow anywhere. And so mm -hmm. what's going on there in nature is that the weeds are remineralizing. They're grabbing things from below the surface in their root structure. They're bringing them up to the surface. And then those are dying and redepositing those minerals on the surface annually. And so when you take those weeds uh, and, and ferment them, um, and then redistribute them, you're doing nothing more than speeding up nature's process, which makes total sense to me. Um, and this is borne out um, for anybody that walks down this road and recognizes, and especially if they document in their garden notebook, what weeds are in their garden, <laughs> and then add some minerals, do these things, and guess what? The weeds are going to change. They're actually going mm -hmm. to change. And then this starts you down the road to recognize that cultivated plants uh, have a, uh, a specific mineral profile that they like to grow in that weeds don't. And so uh, the philosophical approach here is that you don't need herbicides to eliminate weeds. All you need is to change the mineral composition and then those weeds will go away. And so as you go forward, you um, are moving towards a, a, a situation where you don't have those weeds anymore as those weeds change and as the minerals come into balance in your soil. It's just such a wonderful concept uh, and, and just such, you know, it's again, it's back to this empowerment of, of, of working with nature and understanding the models of nature rather than trying to kill something. I mean, the idea of putting a herbicide yeah. uh, to kill a weed is so mind-bendingly ridiculous. I, I can't even believe it, right? Because it doesn't take a, a, a great uh, uh, amount of thinking to realize that if you're killing a weed, well, you're killing many aspects of that biosystem, whether mm -hmm. it's the fungus, the mm -hmm. bacteria, the archaea, the, the nematodes, whatever it is, other things are dying. Um, and so yeah. rather than trying to outsmart nature, uh, these ideas are how to work with nature. Um, yeah. McKemmon's book is uh, really, really good. Uh, it's, it's a, it I came across his first edition of the book. I don't know, I even know how many years ago now. Um, but I used it um, as not only a way to assess the mineral content of specific soils based on the weeds that are growing there, but also as something to um, 
use as uh, an indication of what minerals I might be able to get out of the uh, uh, specific kinds of weeds. So mm -hmm. earlier on, I was looking for databases that said, okay, well, what's in uh, uh, chickweed, for instance? Well, it's good right. to eat, tastes good in a salad, and it's a green. <laughs> I mean, right. right now in my hoop house, I could probably go find some chickweed and here in New England and eat mm -hmm. it. Uh, so that's mm -hmm. a positive. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the two databases that came to mind was one was uh, McKemmons. The other one was James Duke's database. Uh, it, it put out. I don't know that one. That's a real good one. It's, it's referenced in my book. But uh, uh, James Duke was an amazing, uh, uh, I'll call him an herbalist, uh, and I'm sure that's a, an understatement. Hmm. But he has a, a, um, a database that has thousands of different plants in it. And within this database, he lists the different minerals that might be in these plants um, and, and, um, and the ranges of them. It's a, just a tremendous database. Mm. So that's another place where you can figure out, well, what minerals are actually in the, uh, uh, the weeds or plants or what plants might I go look for if I'm looking for certain minerals? Right, a certain yep. mineral, yeah. The yeah. other thing, the other wow. thing is that, um, so a lot of people, uh, I'll, I'll use another example of, uh, uh, um, oh, what's that weed that everybody hates? Shoot. Quackgrass. <laughs> Let's see. Quackgrass. Quack grass. Yeah. Oh, well, we both right. So um, <laughs> That's how much everybody hates Well, it. so I had quackgrass in my garden, all right? And I thought to myself, exactly along this line of thinking, I wonder what's mm -hmm. in it. And so while mm. I was weeding all my quackgrass, I took the grass and the roots and all these things and I fermented it. And I mm -hmm. did analysis on it. And by the way, I think that's actually in table E. Um, I think it is in there. Yeah. I'll look but I it. was amazed to find how rich in minerals quackgrass was. And so along the exact same line of thinking that you just talked about, it became clear to me that this is what my garden needs. And so I harvested the yeah. quackgrass rather than cursing at it and make a, a mineral amendment. I fermented it uh, for using fermented uh, uh, organic brown sugar, make fermented plant juice. And I have a shelf stable uh, uh, amendment of this very, very rich uh, mineral amendment that I can use throughout the growing season. So how have you, have you taken that quackgrass uh, FPJ and are you spraying it back where the quackgrass came from or are you spay, spraying crops with it or how are you using that then? You All know, like the in my mind, I've been taking my weed tea and putting it back where the weed was yep. to try to shift it or are you using it in a different way? I use it uh, not only in, in that manner, but also to feed the plants directly because if the plant's okay. growing in okay. the soil and the soil is deplete in those minerals, then by feeding the plant, I'm giving them what might be deficient in the soil. In the soil. Yeah, that makes so much sense. So let me, while we're on the topic of weeds, um, and I'm looking in uh, Nigel's book, uh, at, there's an appendix at the back where you've listed out uh, all the different, um, lots and lots of different weeds and what, and, and also regular, regular stuff too. And in there, I was looking at this the other day and thinking uh, of the questions I wanted to ask you. <laughs> and some, so for flower farmers in particular, certain minerals are more important than others. Obviously, we still need a balanced soil as everybody who wants to grow some Thing does, but phosphorus and calcium are two biggies for us in terms of phosphorus is for flowering and calcium is really important for strong stems, which is also really important flower farming. So, and then I've personally been struggling with some boron lately. So I was looking at the boron column and it's really fascinating to me. And this is just a uh, 
to let listeners know what I saw based on looking at your index back here, you know, nettle tea is, uh, you know, a fermentation of nettles. It seems to be like the best thing across the board. <laughs> like nettles are crazy powerful. Um, but I was looking and, and chickweed is super valuable in terms of the phosphorus content is really high in chickweed. And so I was thinking, and comfrey does really well too. So I was thinking if I made a mix, and I already have these three brewing actually, but chickweed, comfrey, and nettle, I've got a bucket for each of those in terms of making weed tea. In the spring, I feel like if I mix those three things together, I'm going to hit both phosphorus, calcium, and boron. So I find it really interesting to think about mixing, sort of mixing our own fertilizer, not just brewing these things, but then looking at the mineral content and being able to, uh, you know, make... I don't, yeah, just make a mix. You know how <laughs> there's like NPK on the fertilizer bag. Well, maybe it's a little harder to like get that with every single weed, but you could say, well, the the chickweed's going to bring the P and the nettle's going to bring the K or whatever like that. So does that does that seem to ring true with you? Like, what do you think about that, Nigel? Yeah, I think those are great ideas. Um, uh, so just to expound on that, the vinegar extractions offer tremendously mm -hmm. powerful sources of um, uh, calcium and phosphorus. Um, if you look at the appendix, I believe I have a couple of uh, vinegar extractions in there and the website uh, uh, database also has some as well. In short, when you are using vinegar to extract minerals from things like oh, wow. oyster shells or egg shells, um, the calcium content is extremely high. And again, you can measure it. You can see it. It's it's all in the data, mm -hmm. just like you said. So now mm -hmm. I have, I mm -hmm. mean, fermenting eggshells is wicked simple. Um, and um, and so now you have a, a, a vinegar extraction and amendment that's loaded with calcium that you can augment your nettle or your chickweed or whatever it might be. And the same with uh, mm -hmm. fermenting, uh, sorry, vinegar extractions of bones. Um, when you use bones, mm -hmm. if you look at those data, you're going to find that they're really high in phosphorus, right? And, and yeah, the cow bones is like off exactly. the charts on here. <laughs> exactly. And so th those <laughs> yeah. were just two examples of, um, okay, so now the, the, it's wide open, right? So if you know mm -hmm. you need these things, you can indeed dial them in. You can go in. And the nice thing about mm. is, uh, you, so you make a, a quart of uh, vinegar extraction of cow bones, for instance. Well, you're diluting this thing like a 500 or 1,000 to one. So that quart's really like 125 gallons of stuff. Yeah, it's, it's a, a lot. lot. And, yeah. and um, when you start using it, you're going to find you're going to use it quickly. You're going to go through it. Um, <laughs> but now we can start talking about the difference between foliar spraying and drenching. And the efficacy of yes, foliar. Let's do that. Okay, so the efficacy of yeah. foliar spraying um, is just amazing. When you when you back to the plant model thing again, uh, we recognize that there's the xylem and the phloem flows. And when you're foliar spraying, you're putting stuff on the leaves and you're going right to the phloem flow, which distributes minerals throughout the plant, specifically to the sinks, uh, the new growth, the seeds, fruit, roots, and root exudates. And so here's a way to provide a plant with nutrition now. Right now. Yeah. And so that's just a huge, huge thing. And again, back to the toolbox and empowering people to, to know how to do it. And I'm going to say it again, you can also measure the effect of these things. And so a lot of people say, well, how do I know it works? Well, there's a way to do that. You can get your refractometer and you can actually measure the response of these things in your plants um, to determine if they like it or not.
So I have I have a refractometer. Um, I dabbled in it last year, but wasn't really sure if I was. I didn't know. I know how to use it. So this is for the bricks reading. And so, but I didn't know what I was comparing against. You know what I mean? Like there's not an index for flowers to say, well, the bricks should be like 10 on dahlias. Like I, there, there's no index for that. It'd be cool to start one. But basically I assume, and I haven't done this, but tell me if this is a good concept to uh, measure the bricks before spraying, maybe like an hour or two before spraying, and then measure an hour or two after spraying, what, like to see what it changed, or do I need to wait till the next day? Do you have any any tips for better understanding bricks to, to know what's happening there? Yeah. Um, so uh, a lot of people who you'll speak to about using a refractometer, they're going to tell you about how amazingly unreliable and how much varied the, <laughs> the values are. And those are all true statements. All right. And so there is yeah, a lot of yeah. variability. So you have to somehow uh, normalize these things. So um, hmm. I'm going to play engineer here for a minute. So that's awesome. Okay. I love it. Please so let's do. say you got nothing. <laughs> I have nothing. All I have is dahlia. There's nothing in any books that I read about dahlias. I have no idea what the refractive index of a dahlia is, right? So the first thing mm -hmm. that I would do is I'd go out to my dahlia patch and I'd pick four, five, six dahlias and I'd go and measure the refractive index on the pick a, pick a leaf, the third leaf from the top. Mm -hmm. And I'd measure that refractive index at two hour intervals starting at eight in the morning throughout the whole day. Hmm. Okay. So what I'm going to hmm. do, so now I'm going to do what I, I've just developed the Dahlia profile. Now okay. I know what Dahlias yeah. do. You did it. Why do you make this so easy? You're so good at this. Like I, I couldn't wrap my head around it. And now Piece I'm like, Oh, I see right? this. <laughs> so you're, so now you're an experimental gardener and you're, you're, you've created right. your own data. You don't need anybody. You don't need a book. Gotcha. You don't, you, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so now you do that for a few days, right? And so now okay. you know what to expect from your dahlias, okay? And so now you now you yeah. take your uh, uh, fermented chickweed or whatever it might be, and you foliar spray uh, half of your dahlias. Okay. And you go do the same thing. And see what and it see changes. What now, if yeah. the dahlias that didn't get sprayed do better than the dahlias that did get sprayed, then they say, okay, what, what gives? Was it, too was it too concentrated? Was it mm. the wrong time mm. of day? Okay, now you're thinking. And all of a sudden, that notebook of yours is going to become real heavy. Yeah, it's really right? heavy. <laughs> okay, so the point is that you have all the tools you need. You don't need anything else. You can create these databases yourself. You can create these ideas yourself. Yeah. Yeah, that is amazing. And I the one reason I want to, you know, learn how to to take my citizen science to a new level is because I, I picked on dahlias on purpose because they're a crop for flower farmers that are notoriously hard. You know, they're just fussy. Um, sometimes they're really good, but sometimes they're not. They tend to be prone to pest damage, extreme pest damage. And from all my reading based on, uh, you know, regenerative farming, particularly in the vegetable world, there's a lot of, uh, if, if only observational science, not necessarily like uh, database, where people say, well, once the bricks reading gets to a certain point in XYZ plant, tomatoes, pick on that, uh, then they don't have pests. And so I'm like, well, what is that in dahlias and how can we get there? And it would be amazing to, to sort of just uh, put a research project together based on that and see what it is that we need to get to. I know in your book, you said something about 
honeybees won't go to a plant that has bricks lower than seven, I think it was, which was also sort of like mind expanding of like, wow, okay, so there's there's something really to it then. Um, And I love this. We're definitely doing a refractometer dahlia research panel (laughs) this uh, this summer coming up. So, yeah, I love that. Insects don't bother plants that have high bricks readings because they don't have the enzymes in their gut to digest the sugars. Oh, so, I never knew that. So, okay, so it's, that makes it doesn't sense. matter if it's a tomato or a, or a dahlia. Um, if that sugar content is low, um, the plant actually exudes uh, infrared radiation that is a neon sign that says, come eat me. This is what, this is what insects are meant to do. Yeah, they're, they're cleanup Clean crews. Proof, right. Yeah, to get rid Otherwise, of stuff. Otherwise, we'd yeah. be in a heap of garbage. Uh, right. Anyway, so so that it's the same with the dahlias. And you can also determine uh, a little bit about the uh, sugar content of your plant by the type of insect that's actually um, eating your dahlia. Um, and do tell more. I would love to know grasshoppers. Uh, if you've got grass, uh, that's if you've one. got grasshoppers, <laughs> that means your bricks level is pretty high. That means you're getting up into the. Oh. So I guess that if you have grasshoppers that are eating your plants, your plants are going to bricks in the nine, 10, 11 range. That's just a guess. Wow. And it's like the aphids and the, the, the little tiny thing that's in the sevens. You're, those are the low end. So when you start having grasshopper problems, you're moving in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Okay. What about things like uh, cucumber beetles or, you know, the little beetles, the harlequin beetles, like little Again, beetles. What about those them? chewing guys, those guys that are chewing your, your plant, those, those are um, higher bricks uh, type insects. Okay. But you don't have, you're getting there. You don't have much further to go to get the bricks high enough to thwart okay. them as well. Wow. I had no idea that you could, that, that, that's, that's very much along the same lines as Jay's book, When Weeds Talk. It's like, now somebody needs to write a book about when pest talks, because, you know, because it, it, that, I never knew that you could read the health of your plant based on which pests were on them. You know, I just thought like a super healthy plant won't have pests, but I never thought to think about a quantifying quality, you know, that comes with a specific pest. And that's, that's really incredible. The power of observation out in the field is we could learn so much just standing there and looking basically, instead of worrying about, um, I don't know, what the scientists say or whatever. I mean, it's important to have the science and the research, but I think there's so much to be said for the power of observation in the field and for that handy notebook. <laughs> the, uh, there was an interview um, uh, with John Kemp. John interviewed mm. uh, Tom Dykstra. Tom Dykstra is an amazing mm. character, and it, it's his work that uh, I'm, uh, I'm quoting uh, relative to the insects uh, and Brick's readings. Wow. Thank you for that. I'm definitely going down that rabbit hole. And I love John's podcast too. So (laughs) always, always good to know. So the other thing I wanted to talk about so that listeners can, I am such an advocate of this, but I just want to talk about it uh, because your book, your book, drove it home and had already read about it in Jadam, but the idea of you take crop 
material. So not we're not talking weeds now. We're talking um, crop plant material and brew that, ferment that into fertilizer. So here I'm going to pick on dahlias again. So for listeners, the process that I do in the spring, the dahlias come up and then we have to pinch them anyway. That's part of the process of growing a dahlia is you're going to pinch out about four to six inches of growth that is new, healthy, not bug bitten growth usually it's like primo growth and in the past you know and you know two or three years ago when i'm pinching my dahlias i'm just throwing it in the grass and not thinking twice about it now whenever we pinch dahlias or the same goes for zinnias or snapdragons we pinch so many things in the flower farming world we take that pinched new healthy growth off and we jam it into a five gallon bucket and then we brew it we ferment it the same way we were just talking about where you put it in rainwater you put it a handful of leaf mold um and we brew it, and then later in the year, we'll have the brew, and I've used it to spray back onto the dahlias. We'll just stick with dahlias, so spray it back onto the dahlias as a foliar feed. And <clears throat> so the same plant is feeding, you know, basically it's a, <laughs> it's kind of like cannibalization <laughs> because it's like the plants in the spring are now eating themselves, which is a little kind of gory, but... Um, I, I I have noticed tremendous difference in plant growth that way. I know that the science is there, so to speak. My question to you, Nigel, is do you think I should save that brew, that Dahlia early growth brew, for the following season's mm. Dahlias? You know what I mean? So I know there's different mineral profiles in new growth and old mm. growth. And so in the spring, they probably have uh, a higher nitrogen content, a higher... Um, um, potassium content or whatever. And then later in the year when they're flowering, they want to have a higher phosphorus content, et cetera. So uh, yeah, I just wanted to tease that apart because I believe really strongly in doing this, it's a powerful way of feeding your plants. But should I be more patient, basically? <laughs> I'm always getting impatient. Yeah. <laughs> and also there's only so many five-gallon buckets a girl can have <laughs> around her farm <laughs> because there's about 15 now. So what do you think? What, what do you think's the right time to spray that stuff back on? I see more buckets in your future. <laughs> Ugh, that was not the right answer. <laughs> so it's a really cool question. And one of the things that I'm doing is uh, is allowing a, a, a bucket of leaf mold biology fermentation to go and then do that analysis on it at six months and one year, blah, 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 as time goes on uh, to see what uh, what minerals are actually in there. Uh, we talked briefly about the biology that's in there as well. Um, and I'm sure the biology changes as time goes on as well. Mm. Um, so the, the easy answer is you have a very dynamic process going on. Um, and I think you're correct that the old growth in the September timeframe is different than the new growth in spring. I mean, if you just consider grasses and, and the quality of cow's milk between spring and, and fall, there's a good example to support that conversation. And so um, the easy answer is, yeah, you're onto something. And, and then I go back to the toolbox. Now you have a toolbox mm. that you can use to start teasing these things out. And then you have a notebook that you're going to be recording these things in. And again, this is my goal is to provide people with these tools so they can tease these things out, that you are empowered. You are an experimental gardener and you are on it. <laughs> and it's fun. It's really fun to watch this stuff happen. <laughs> and, and it connects us. It connects us to some reality yeah. that we've been divorced from mm -hmm. for way too long. Right.
Yeah, it's so true because I do feel like I'm now part of just a, a cycle that was happening around me anyway. And I just, I just wasn't tapped into it. And now it feels like, oh, yeah. So the, instead of throwing all this plant material away without a second thought, I can see it for all the value that it is. Um, just the same way like a giant oak tree in the forest, when it drops its leaves, it's because it's fertilizing itself. You know, it's just going to like it all circles back around. Um, so so another question for you, if I may um, pick at your brain a little bit more. So I've been making these as the leaf mold, leaf mold ferment sort of process, you know, fermenting them in the water with the leaf mold. Do you think the sort of more of the fermented plant juice approach where sugar is involved is more potent, more powerful? I frankly have failed at that multiple times. So I just always go the easy route. But it's something worth thinking about. Do you know if, if, based on your analysis, have you seen doing it one way is more potent than the other way? Have you experimented with that? Uh, the answer is definitely. Um, the from, oh, fermented okay. plant juice using organic brown sugar is going to provide higher concentrations of minerals than the leaf mold uh, biology fermentation. And I believe I have examples of that. If you look at table E, and you look at the, the leaf mold versus the fermented plant juice, I believe I provided um, at least one plant of both and you can see the difference in the concentration. Yeah. So these are the kinds of information that's actually in that book that uh, my hope it- <laughs> I didn't pay that much attention, well, So sorry. my book, my book uh, um, is, is, I'm hopeful, Jenny, that you're gonna be looking at that book differently every year. And, and every year yeah, you're gonna I find am. something else that says, hey, that, you know, boom, bing kind of thing. And and mm -hmm. this is an example yeah, of it. Yeah, no, definitely. And so again, this is yeah. the value of that database that I was trying to talk about. I recognize that the, the database in this book was is, is kind of like, okay, here's the door, C crack the door open. Mm -hmm. These are the kinds of things that you can look at. And these are the things that I'm trying to do in the online database um, is to try and put these sorts of things in there uh, and, and, and expand on these ideas. But in general, um, the idea of putting weeds in a bucket, I've, um, I believe I have some of those in there as well. I think I have that for comfrey. Mm -hmm. I can't remember what I have in there, to be honest with you. But anyway, you that dandelions. dandelions. Okay, so yeah. that works, right? You yeah. can actually take dandelions, mm -hmm. put them in water, and after a couple of weeks, you can start using it. But the concentration of minerals in that liquid is going to be significantly less than the leaf mold biology fermentation. And that's going to be less than the fermented plant juice by uh, uh, fermentation. That's going to be less again than the vinegar extractions. So when you start looking at that table, you're going to realize that you really might want all of these things on your shelf. Huh. And so now back to your commentary about picking and choosing what minerals do you really want? What time of year and things like that. Now you really have a, a choice, a, a, an apothecary of, of, right, right. of mineral amendments that you can use to satisfy times of year, uh, the particular elements that you're trying to uh, put forward to the plant. And by the way, all of these amendments are in uh, ionic forms. They're in the forms that plants want and can use. So you've, you've all of a sudden are developing, again, your own science, your own methodology, mm -hmm. and you don't need uh, anybody else to tell you that it's good or bad or anything like that. You've mm -hmm. got all the tools you need to, to do this yourself and recognize these things yourself.
I want to I want to hit I want to drive home something you just said that the all of this um, brewing is immediately available to the plants. So that's the thing that I I so often people are using granular fertilizers that they're putting in the ground, whether they're organic or not. Like I'm not even here to judge the source of that or of that fertilizer. But you put stuff into the ground thinking that you're feeding your plants, but you're not really. I mean, it, 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 at best, it might feed them in a year um, if you're lucky. <laughs> but a lot of other things are going to prey on that new, that fertility and eat it also. But this is immediately water-soluble, absorbable nutrition for plants, whether you're foliar feeding or putting it in the ground. I am a big fan of foliar feeding myself. But um, that that is part of what makes all this stuff so potent is it is... In, it's instant. You can. I literally will spray um, my dahlia. Just keep picking on my dahlias. I swear, I grow like two hundred other varieties of flowers. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I will. I will spray my dahlias in the evening because I like to spray in the evening. And the next morning, I come in and those plants are glowing. They've put on new growth, even like instantly. You know, you see little tiny new green shoots. Like they always respond instantly it is such an elixir of life for them to get this kind of stuff sprayed on not just not just the the weed tea and stuff but um anytime i foliar feed they seem so much more responsive than anything i put in the soil <laughs> so, so you just you yeah. just uh, identified another source of experimentation for determining whether or mm. not your plant likes it or not you know you do that to half of the plants and not the other half and you don't even need a refractometer you just come and look at it in the morning right <laughs> just watch yeah and, and exactly. if i could could I expand on just that one topic you said? When you take rock dust and things like that and put them on your soil, like you said, that rock dust has to be decomposed by the biology in the soil. It has to get into the soil solution and then it has to get into the xylem flow of the plant before it, it moves up. Now, that might be very useful when we recognize that, for instance, calcium does not flow very well in the phloem pathway. We recognize, okay, we got to have that calcium in the soil so that it can get up the xylem pathway. And so adding uh, sulfur, maybe, you know, from a, from a real mine, you know, that talcum powdery sulfur, mm -hmm. that uh, uh, gypsum, that might be a really good idea. So now I've got that calcium sulfate that can go up that pathway. But uh, then you've got the drench. When you drench, okay, you've got those things in the nice format that plants can use, but it still has to get into the soil solution and then into the xylem flow. And, but, and as you point out, Jenny, uh, the foliar sprays, you need small amounts and, and it is, it's sucked up within minutes or hours. And so that's just a real mm -hmm. winner. Yeah, it is, it is such a winner, though I have a cautionary tale. <laughs> so it was something else that I wanted to talk Good. to you about. Uh, I uh, uh, You turned me on to nettles as a brew, to brew fresh nettles. Um, I've been making it as, as weed tea or uh, leaf mold fermentation. And this past spring, so 2021, I had started seedlings and then um, they were seedlings that uh, I don't think they even had true leaves yet, which is, should have been my first um, warning bell. But I wanted to give them a little juice. I thought, well, JLF is like the bomb, apparently, from everything that I've experienced and read and, you know, all that stuff. And I thought, oh, well, what better way to um, get these little babies off to a good start than give them a little a misting of um, nettle JLF. And yeah, the next day they were yellow. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so to me, that was an indicator that the stuff's really powerful. You know, it can 
I was of the mindset that like, whatever, it's all natural. Uh, it's not going to hurt anything. And I realized that I really, particularly with really young seedlings need to, A, I got to wait till they have true leaves. I shouldn't have been spraying them when they were just um, with their new little baby cotyledons. And B, um, it should be really diluted for a young tender plant. So like I was just doing, I think I was doing a teaspoon to a gallon, like I usually do if I use it out in the field, but I really needed, you know, now I just do like a drop <laughs> in there. <laughs> um, and, and I wait now until they're, they're maybe two or three inches tall before I start adding any of this stuff. Have you experienced any time when no. some of these brews have caused a problem you know like where it's like oh crap this is um not a good idea not to the detriment that you um just explained um i'm trying to think a teaspoon to a gallon that i'm trying to figure out what that really is so a, a tablespoon to four gallons is a thousand to one so a teaspoon to a gallon three teaspoons in a tablespoon right so you're you're talking less than a thousand to one so that's a pretty dilute yeah. That's pretty dilute. Um, I don't know what yeah. I did. I think it was mostly because it, they were so young. I think that is what what it what yeah. it was. Um, because I I guess maybe it's not in your book. It was maybe in another book that I was reading about that um, stage of growth in plants and how certain you know the cell structure sure. is different and the hormones are different and that I, I suspect it was because they were so yeah. young. Um, so that is not a that is not a story to turn anybody off to this, but to just say uh, maybe go slow and before you go all in. Yeah. <laughs> so I have a question for you, if you don't mind, no. about the vinegar extracts in particular. This wasn't what I was actually going to pick your brain about today because I could we could literally spend like eight hours talking because I have so many questions. <laughs> but, but we'll go down this rabbit hole. I do vinegar extracts for eggshells. I have not gone to doing cow bones because I don't eat cows so much uh, very often. So I haven't done um, the bones yet. But my, uh, I love my eggshell extract. I use it a lot for calcium, um, particularly on the dahlias. I sometimes worry, is that vinegar part of it? Can we talk about the chemistry of vinegar once it's sat with eggshells or bones it, it, what's the ph does the you know vinegar is not something you would normally want to douse your plants with so can you talk to me about what happens to the vinegar in that process yeah, it's still going to have some acidity associated with it um but you're going to be diluting it uh a thousand to one or 500 to one so mm. the the acidity uh, is not going to be an issue um at all um the nice thing about vinegar is it's got a lot of um a lot of protons in it. So that's going to help hmm. Uh, hmm. with your plant and the electrical flows going on there. But uh, um, all in all, hmm. I don't think that there's a problem primarily because you're diluting it at such high rates. Okay. Okay. So I don't have to worry about that yep. so much. It does always and you can also, freak me out a little you bit. You can also <laughs> make your own vinegar. I mean, making, Ooh. right, that this is really simple yeah. to do. So if you really want to get down to... Um, uh, using your own resources there, at least in this part of the world, I think in your part of the world too, there's all kind of apple trees mm -hmm. all over the place. And so, oh, make, yeah, I got a whole bunch of exactly. fruit trees. Yeah. And actually it was, uh, this goes back to the whole international conversation. I was having a conversation with somebody that said, well, we don't have apples around here. And, um, mm. and so then I said, well, what do you grow? And the person listed a laundry list of fruits. So I said, well, guess what? You've got 
all of the fruit you need and anybody can make bad wine. So you're, you're off to the races and you know, the light bulb went off and haven't heard from that person again. So that's, that's a good <laughs> sign, right? So, right. make, so making your right. own vinegar. I mean, if you really want to get down to sustainability mm. and, and, and being mm -hmm. um, uh, a purist in that regard, or even just having fun with the, the fruit that's around, make your own vinegar. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a good call. I, I haven't gone to that step, but we do have a small orchard on the farm. So could definitely uh, dive into that as well, uh, which would be great. So, um, well, what else, what else do you, uh, I'm trying to think of just, I, I have so many questions and I wanted to make sure to stay like sort of more focused for myself, but what do you think is in, have you done any microscope work where you've looked at leaf mold and tried to see what kind of biology is in there. And I, I may be one of those urban people. So my farm is actually in Philadelphia, even though I've got six acres around me, but it's all disturbed older, you know, I, I, it's open land and it's got lots of trees on it, but it is disturbed. And I struggle to find good leaf mold mm. in terms of like, I can't make IMO to save my life. I can't do Korean natural farming IMO because I just, I don't, I just don't think the biology is that good in this space. So have you ever examined, you seem so good at, at, you know, um, teasing apart what's happening here. Have you ever examined leaf molds and, and have any advice on finding good leaf mold? Yeah. Um, so I have done analysis on my IMO4 um biological analysis on it and um i i haven't done a lot of it but the and the main reason is that we know so little about it right i mean mm -hmm. one of the things yeah. we talk about is the fact that if you take the all the biology all the bacteria and fungi in the world uh we only know the names of 10 percent of them right and so <laughs> When you go and do an analysis, a, a biological analysis on something, they say, well, you've got this many of this biology and this much of that bacteria and this much of that fungi. Well, they don't even talk about archaea, for instance, right? And so I have a tough time relying on measurements based on how much we don't know in order to determine mm. if the stuff is good or not. Uh, so I stopped doing that. Um, and okay. I recognize that whatever I've got is, is better than anything I'm going to get. Right. <laughs> if I, when I go True. buy a package and it says it's got six kinds of this bacteria and four kinds of this fungi or whatever it might be, a it's in a powder form. They're probably dormant. B I don't know what part of the mm -hmm. world they come in, come from. I don't know if they're going to do well in my soil or not, but I can guarantee that that handful of leaf mold is a ubiquitous in the life forms that are in it. And B it wants to grow here. Um, so mm. to me, I don't even, I don't even measure that anymore. I just go for it and recognize that that's the best effort. So when you're in an, uh, an urban setting, and, and this is a question that, um, I get a lot, uh, from people and there's all kinds of things you might want to do. So the first thing is that you may want to grab the, if you want to make uh, IMO, you first step is making IMO one, where you're actually capturing mm -hmm. the local biology and that you're making a, a box and you're putting a box of rice in the ground and waiting for it to turn fuzzy, essentially. And um, so you can do that underneath your compost pile, right? Your compost pile has a lot of life in it. So even just having a compost pile on your land or nearby um, offers a source of bacteria and, uh, and fungus and archaea. Um, 
And then if you're really strapped, I mean, you're in a city block and you've got nothing but concrete in all directions for miles, um, maybe it's time to take a vacation for a week in a park or something like that, or the woods nearby <laughs> or something like that. And, and once you've captured this stuff, then you've got it because uh, you can take the, the, um, uh, that rice IMO1 that's got the, uh, the fuzz on it. You make IMO2. Well, actually, what you're doing is you're, you're stabilizing the stuff and, and getting it into a form that you can hang it'll hang out. And I have uh, IMO2, several varieties of IMO2 in my refrigerator. Um, and um, it's kind of funny, people that look inside my refrigerator, they ask me when the power went off. Anyway. <laughs> Anyways, so, um, so you can... This is shelf stable. This IMO2 is, is mm -hmm. shelf stable. So um, I'll make IMO2 in the fall. I'll make it in the spring. Um, and so now I have different kinds of biologies from different times of year that are local to my area that I can draw from mm -hmm. to make uh, IMO3 and 4 and also use in the teas that you're referring to. I could take this stuff and dump it directly into a tea. And now I have a biological source that I can add to my soils and my gardens mm -hmm. going forward. Yeah. So do you, the answer may be no, you have, I, I completely agree. Like local biology is better. I, the, I see no point in buying in a bunch of, you know, powdery inoculants um, when you can just go grab it yourself, particularly because the stuff that comes, you know, we might get a pouch of stuff from California. What no biology that lives in California is going to want to live in Philadelphia. So uh, it's a counterproductive. Uh, my question has always been because I kind of stink at doing IMO. I've just failed. I've tried four times. I, I can't seem to get it to work. Uh, but leaf mold, uh, 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 you know, making JMS, essentially genome micro microbial solution, seems so easy. And I succeeded that every time. Do you know if IMO is worth the extra trouble? Maybe is my question. You know what yep. I mean? Like making the leaf mold um, tea or JL JMS is so darn easy. Uh, should I try again at IMO based on a different data or analysis that you've seen? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I, I, I think the answer is, and this is the standard answer that most people hate, it, it depends, right? It, <laughs> it depends. depends. <laughs> um, I make IMO. I really like IMO4. I think it's an amazing product. Um, and um, the reason that I like IMO4 is not only because of the biological uh, characteristics of it, but also in the process of making IMO4, the liquids that you're adding are the mineral amendments that we just talked about. And so I can mm. take a pile of soil, a pile of dirt, and I can add into it the rock dusts because the rock dusts are going to be digested by that biology. Mm -hmm. And I can add to it the uh, leaf mold biology amendments, the fermented plant juice amendments, the vinegar extraction amendments. And I can build up in that solution all of the minerals that I want to put onto my soil. And so I can actually mm -hmm. dial in a, uh, an IMO4 that not only has biology, but also has a complement of uh, uh, minerals in it, minerals. depending if I want a high this or low this, or if I want just some balanced thing or something like that. And so I'm making mm -hmm. something that's really, really cool. 
Yeah, no, it, it is really cool. I just wish it wasn't so darn hard. Well, it takes time, and it's and it <laughs> it takes a lot of time, and it's not yeah. cheap uh, for you know depending on yeah. your budget. Uh, the the um, mm -hmm. I use uh, um, wheat bran, organic wheat wheat oh, bran, okay. um, just because it's local rather than the rice. Mm -hmm. um, the rice, and yeah. I, I let's see, I might buy a hundred and fifty pounds of wheat bran, and it might cost me sixty or seventy dollars. Well, that's you know mm -hmm. for for somebody that wants to do something for nothing, 60 bucks is a lot of money. And, and mm -hmm. it, it also takes uh, 40 or 50 gallons of water, right? So I, mm -hmm. I collect that water. I have that available mm -hmm. for a, a rainwater to do it. So it doesn't cost me water. And I know I'm getting a good quality water. I mean, there's a whole other subject we could talk about. We could talk quality of water till the cows come. We should. We should. Before we leave off, we should definitely talk about quality and, of water. And so, um, and then it takes a, a, a month to do it. It takes a week to make IMO1. It takes a couple of days to make IMO2. It takes a good week to make IMO3 and another week to make IMO4. So, and it's a, not a, a trivial amount of work too. It's a really fun to get folks mm -hmm. over and do it together. It's a wonderful community experience, um, which has value as well. And not to mention the energies mm -hmm. that are going in that when you're building these things. All right, we haven't talked about that, but that's a, uh, also another thing is, is, is the energies that are going into these products and, uh, and things like that. Um, I, I recommend yeah. you do it. Uh, okay. I'll give it another shot. I just got frustrated. I'm somebody who likes to see something succeed. I, I'm, I, yes, I need to do it again. I, I think I just need to find um, a slightly healthier ecosystem to grab that from than what I've been trying to. So what problem, I wanted to ask you, what, what are the problems you're having making IMO1? I don't know. I've done it. I've tried four times now. What happens? Um, and so, well, one time it got eaten. So that was not, you know, really the leaf mold tea or the, the leaf mold or, you know, lack of uh, microorganisms. Uh, but every time it just, I get, I guess I also maybe need to do more research, but I get colors that I've been told are not the right colors. So I just always get a color that's not right. And so it's either like red or, um, the one time I think it was blue. Your rice is too wet. <laughs> so, oh, is that what it is? Okay. So I need drier rice. Okay. All right. How do you, how, how do you know how to make rice so, not too so wet? Do you, I guess like what's the Do so you cook rice for yourself, ratio? right? Okay. Mm -hmm. So yeah. add a little bit less water. Okay. And that's, that's, that's simple. That's yeah. it. Okay, I'll just keep experimenting until I get the right level. Yeah, so, of it, so. those colors are those All colors right. are generally an indication that things are too wet. Okay. Talking about making vinegar extracts, I get asked regularly, why do you have to cook the eggshells or cook the bones? And I really don't know the answer to that question yeah. at all. <laughs> then it seems like you know a lot about vinegar extracts. So tell us, why are we cooking things before we put it in the vinegar? Yeah. Um, so there are a couple of reasons. The first is you want to get rid of all the biology that's on those bones. Uh, um, uh, the There's a bunch of uh, collagen and marrow and all kind of funky things in the bones. And then you've got the egg yolks and things like that on the eggs. And 
on oyster shells, you've got the remnants of the, the meat on there and things like that. So by cooking them, you're getting rid of all that biological stuff that may uh, hinder the, uh, the actual vinegar extraction. If you're using organic apple cider vinegar, for instance, or your own homemade apple cider vinegar, um, you're going to form a mother on the top of it. And that mother could be influenced mm. by all of this biology that you're adding. So you want to get rid of that. So basically you could like skunk your, your vinegar if you, if you put in the something biology, like that. you want something that doesn't have it. At and the other thing is, the other thing is that you're getting rid of all the moisture, right? You want to get all the water out of the interstitial mm -hmm. spaces of the bones or the shells uh, so that the vinegar can actually get in there. And so you're getting rid of all that water. So when it does get put into the vinegar, the vinegar can get into those places and, and do its extraction. Huh. That's such a simple answer. Why did I never think of that? <laughs> yeah. Does it matter? I, sometimes I burn my eggshells. Does it matter if I burn them? No. So you're actually <laughs> okay. you're interested in the element composition of those those things, right? And so burning yeah. them doesn't get rid of the elements, right? The elements are still there. Okay. Okay. By taking the uh, the knuckles from a, a from a grocer or a butcher um, and making bone broth out of them is an extremely nutritious. Uh, food for you. And after you've made bone broth a couple times, then you can roast those bones and extract the vinegar out of them. So this is a way to close the waste cycles. Uh, and it's very, very important. Um, and I uh, uh, think that there's a lot of resources that we have in the vinegar extraction world that are not often used. Uh, um, I like to go to my local restaurants around here and uh, I'll get the oyster shells from them, for instance, uh, or if you're lucky enough to have crab or lobster shells to make vinegar extractions or to throw in your compost pile. I think there's an, an just an amazing amount of uh, what other people think is trash or garbage that gets thrown out that can be used for uh, uh, garden uh, mineral amendment processes. So if you do <clears throat> get crab shells or oyster shells, do you need to cook those yep. too? Is that like you would do the yep. same thing? Yes. Okay. Do you like treat it basically like eggshells? Yep. Like do it in a skillet or any advice on a technique? Yeah, you can do okay. it in a skillet. Um, you can do it. Uh, I like using a grill because um, the odiferousness of it all is overpowering for those people that care what their house smells like. And I live with somebody <laughs> who's in that boat, luckily for me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can also uh, put them in a can. Um, you can literally just take them in a can and, and throw blow holes in the can. And when you have that bonfire out with all your friends on Friday uh, night, yeah. as yeah, soon yeah. as everybody's done and you're going to go home or stuff, throw the can on the coals and the embers and, and the come back in the morning and pick them up. That's a really good idea. Okay, I can do that. I I often have. Um, I've been making a lot of uh, charcoal for biochar, so we could maybe uh, do a little you know, stacking functions there yeah, I <laughs> when we have the fire. I going. have a YouTube channel uh, um, and oh, yeah, do? I do. And uh, there's many of these uh, ideas are, are shown uh, how to do it on, a, on my YouTube yeah. channel. Okay, cool. So you mentioned a, a word uh, earlier that I wanted to comment yeah. on uh, and that is woo-woo. Life <laughs> yeah. is woo-woo. It really is woo-woo. And, yeah. and the reason that I say that is not because it's woo-woo in the sense of, oh, gee, this is unreal kind of thing. It's woo-woo in the sense that nature works on scales that we don't understand. Mm. And we don't 
uh, recognize. And when something really remarkable happens in nature, you know, we go woo woo, right? Rather than mm-hmm. say, look, these are the way these dynamic systems work. And so mm-hmm. I think that mm-hmm. there is a, um, there's a, there's, there's this misunderstanding that woo woo means something that's not real rather than woo woo means these are how these systems work and the incredible changes that you see in a plant when you feed it the right nutrition, for instance, mm. you're going to get remarkable mm. results. The number of pollinators that you see around your fields when you start doing these things, it's, it's woo woo. It's amazing to see mm-hmm. the variety, but guess <laughs> what? These are ways, this is the way these dynamical systems work. Yeah. My approach to these things is to try and provide uh, enough, uh, call it scientific evidence that mm-hmm. cracks that door for people, right? So let's talk mm-hmm. biodynamic calendar, for instance. So one mm-hmm. of the things- Yes, let's. Okay, so in, <laughs> in, in, when I teach in Jones School, uh, one of the first things that I te- talk about is how incredibly uh, uh, amazing all sorts of aspects of gardening is. I, I talk about the air, what's really in the air. I talk about the energy. I talk about the soil and that kind of goes us down into the rhizosphere and off we're into the rabbit hole of that. But the other thing I talk about is the sun. Mm-hmm. And so most of us have this, I'm going to go back to a model again. Most of us have this idea mm-hmm. of the sun as being the sole electromagnetic radiation that reaches earth. Well, in fact, that's not true. And in fact, when we, at nighttime, we face the universe, if you will, on the opposite Mm. direction of the sun. Well, when you look at the electromagnetic spectrum of the energy that's bestowed upon us at night compared to that during the day, it's not that different. Now, it's it's very different in the visible spectrum, but if you look at the other parts of the electromagnetic spectrum. It's not that different. And in fact, there's an entire variety of life that occurs at night. The Nicosiana, for Mm -hmm. instance, and all the moths that are pollinating Mm -hmm. that Nicosiana and things like that, right? Mm -hmm. The bats, the this, the that. So there's an entire ecosystem at night that most people don't really understand or take, but they, you, Mm -hmm. you can approach it. Okay. So now, now, now here's the next thing. As we go around the sun, that look at the universe changes as we go around the sun. We're, yeah. we're looking at many, many different universes, many, many different suns. They're coming away from us. They're going f- towards us. So this electromagnetic spectrum changes very subtly as we go around the sun. And because we're looking right. at a different part of the universe. And so now let's, yeah. let's take yeah. it a step further and recognize that the reflection of the sun's electromagnetic radiation spectrum bounces off planets and the moon, which further subtly changes the electromagnetic right. spectrum that we're seeing on Earth during the day and at night. And, and I right. suggest that these are indications of variations in the electromagnetic spectrum that could explain things like the biodynamic calendar. Right. When I plant my garlic, I want to plant it on a root day. And I look for those two, mm-hmm. three root days in a row. And that's where I'm going to go and try and plant as much garlic as I can. Right. So while we're on it, let's talk about quality of water, because I do think that's super important. And your book is great at explaining it. So just run us through it while you while you can. Okay. Um, 
water water matters um, and there's all kind of levels of waters and the gold standard in in my opinion is rainwater uh, rainwater uh, condensates uh, up in the air falls down and you have the ability to grab it and so the um, the carbonates bicarbonates and other uh, uh, I'll call them contaminants uh, that make water hard and things like that are non-existent or minimally existent um, and so that makes that the winning product of all. Um, in fact, uh, I measure the electrical conductivity of my water. And if you measure the electrical conductivity of, of rainwater, it comes out to be about zero. So you're not, you don't have any of those ions no. in it. And then when you start adding the, uh, um, the amendments that we're talking about, you can actually watch the electrical conductivity increase um, as these metals are being added to the water. The, the uh, calciums and uh, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the gold standard. Um, now you're going into uh, wells and streams and ponds. Uh, my guess is those are the, the next levels. Um, and, and if you want to start getting into it, it's well worth measuring the, the hardness of your water. Um, as the hardness of water increases above like 70, something like that, um, the efficacy of your foliar spray will decrease. Um, so that's one of the reasons uh, uh, that I suggest that if you have the ability to collect rainwater, use your rainwater for your foliar sprays. If you had a, once you get rainwater, the hierarchy of things to do with rainwater, number one is use it for your foliar sprays because now you're getting the ions from your amendments that you're making in that rainwater and those will be dispersed and, and absorbed uh, by the plant uh, far better than if you use other kinds of water. So real quick. I don't want to derail you, but why? Why does hard water, it just, it's just locking up the nutrients in foliar, right? It, is that what when, it is? Well, when you have carbonates, uh, bicarbonates, sulfates, these things, they're clinging to the sites that um, would otherwise be available for uh, the amendments that you're um, going to add. So you add your fermented plant juice or whatever other amendments. Um, it doesn't have the ability to hang on and, and interact because sites are already taken up by the carbonates uh, and huh. bicarbonates and things like that. You probably had that in the book and I totally missed that part. I, I thought that, you know, rainwater was best because it's rainwater. Um, and I knew not to use chlorinated water because that's going to kill everything. But I did not realize if you had well water and it's hard water, that that could mean that foliar feeds are not effective. That That's an amazing tidbit. <laughs> that would definitely, that will affect your, your foliar spray. But guess what? For a lot of people, that's what you got. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And then then we can go to the municipality water. Mm. Now, the, the value for me of municipality water is they test it every minute and a half. No, that's exaggeration. <laughs> but they test it weekly, <laughs> daily, monthly. And so you can actually mm -hmm. go to the municipality of your where you get your water and, and ask for those test results and, and you can get information about the water that you're using there. Hmm. Uh, the bad thing is they add all kind of weird stuff to it. Um, never mind chlorines, they add fluorines, which isn't going to do anybody any good. Um, and, and, and a bunch of other things. And, but, but the point is you can ask what those things are um, and, and get that information. So uh, high, in, in, 30 seconds or less rainwater. And then if you're using anything else, uh, figure out what its hardness is. Um, and, uh, and then there's the municipalities that you're stuck with, if that's the case. And then the best thing you can do is just let it air. At least you can get the chlorines mm -hmm. out of it. 
some of yeah. them anyway. I've heard some people use uh, dehumidifiers, like they'll have a dehumidifier set up to just collect the, the water out of that. But to me, that sounds like a lot of work. You know something, it's a really <laughs> so. interesting idea. Um, and when, because if yeah. you think about it, if you think about the pretense of rainwater being condensed up above and falling down, uh, humidifiers mm -hmm. are very similar. They're condensing it right here and there and putting it out. Now, I yeah. haven't done any research or analysis on uh on on that water but i think it's an interesting idea to pursue i always just have so much rain so i've, right. got, I've got a 750 gallon rain barrel in the back of right. my barn so it's not a problem to get the rain but i like having an alternative for people who are stuck on municipal water and don't know what else to do so um this has been such a fun conversation. I want to keep going, but I also want to respect your time and our listeners' time, too. So is there anything else that you really feel like people should know and take away from your book? Anything that you feel like is in that book that even somebody like me who's glossed over it or not glossed, I read it carefully, but apparently glossed over certain, you know, important little bits. Is there anything you think that's in there that needs to be uh, touched on? I think that the conversation about energy is entirely lacking in the plant world mm. and the garden world. And that's not to say that I know a hell of a lot about it, um, but it is to say how important it is. And um, I can't help but try and let people know how important it is to be barefoot in the garden. Um, and mm. the reason for this is, is that we recognize that earth is negative. And as you move away from earth, there's an electrical potential that occurs. And so we are standing there. And so we are antenna absorbing this energy. And that energy flows through us, through our feet and into the ground. Animals have a certain resistance associated with them. If you can measure the resistance of a human being from tongue to foot, and there's a certain resistance associated with it. Well, you know, if there's a resistance and there's a potential difference, then there's a current flow. And so we are no, no more than a plant, just like the energy flowing through a plant. That energy flows through us as well. Um, there are scientists that measure the health of animals, whether it be a cow or a turkey or a chicken, by the resistance of beak to foot or tongue to hoof. And we're the same way. Wow, I had no idea. And so, <laughs> I didn't and know so that. when we walk around with shoes on, we have disrupted the energy flow through ourselves and into the ground. Hmm. Take your shoes off. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I love being barefoot at my farm. The challenge always is the amount of bees and the clover. So I always uh, get anxious about stepping on a bee and then getting stung. But I agree. I find it very literally grounding to stand with my toes in the grass. So sometimes I just do that as a way of helping my, at the end of a very stressful day of farming, I will just take my shoes off and just stand there and, and listen, listen and observe and watch the space and, and, um, it's really restorative. So yeah, I love that. I love that advice. That's that I was not expecting that. And I think that's incredibly, uh, just incredibly intuitive and, and good for us as, as growers. So cool. So carry plantain with uh, you. Carry plantain. Carry plantain. Oh, for, for the bee stings, stings if right. I get stung. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I um I definitely I got a lot of plantain around too. <laughs> I'm just a wuss who doesn't want to get stung. <laughs> need to just be okay with it. There's just, in my defense, in my defense, because I run a flower farm, a regenerative flower farm, there are just 
the, a ridiculous amount of bees Lovely. at my farm, and we all coexist happily together, Lovely. except for the bald-faced hornets, which I do not happily coexist with. <laughs> um, but once in a while, getting stung does does hurt. So um, this this has just been such an inspiring conversation to me, and it's also really helped fortify me to feel like I'm going in the right direction with all of this. Because it does feel a little um, just kind of, uh, you know, woo-woo sometimes. I keep I feel like I keep saying the words woo-woo lately, so I'm trying to find a better term for that. But it does feel counter to all the conventional wisdom, I'm using air quotes here, <laughs> conventional wisdom that we as growers, you know, who are farmers have been taught. And it feels like we're we're flying in the face of what is supposed to happen. I really feel like it's so valuable to know that there's a way that we can now analyze data, that we can track data ourselves, yeah. and that, Nigel, you're doing this amazing database that will hopefully uh, support a lot of information. And I just think we need to all work together. That that's that's the only way we can change sort of the perspective, the attitude, the perception, whatever you want to call it, about these more natural inputs. You know, brewing our own um, fertility and our own biology. So, uh, I hope everybody gets your book because it's really really good. Thank you. <laughs> so so again, it's Nigel Palmer, the Regenerative Grower's Guide to Garden Amendments. You guys, if you don't have it already, very very good book to have. And Nigel teaches workshops. Um, and both online and offline so check them out so thank you Nigel for all your time today I really really appreciate it this has been an awesome conversation thank you for the opportunity to speak with you today well that wraps up another energetic episode of no-till flowers I'm so grateful you tuned in and hope you got several new ideas that can help you farm more in step with nature if you enjoyed this episode please be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss the next one also, please take a second to rate and review the podcast wherever you're getting it. Reviews help grow this show and let others know that it's worth a listen. Many thanks to Matt Moran, the post-production manager of No-Till Flowers, for his meticulous editing so you don't have to listen to too many of my outbursts of excitement and laughter. Also, gratitude goes to Nikolai Fox for the original music used here on the show. Until next time, remember, it all stems from the soil.